outstanding. Chris Moon, you are finally here. This is taking a wee bit of time to set up, but um, I'm just so chuffed that you're here. Uh, how the devil are you? Oh, living the dream, mate. Living the dream. How are you? <laughs> fine, fine. Well, I say that. I uh, This is going to sound really, uh, really, um, it's going to sound really daft. And I'm, I'm, I'm gutted that I'm one of the, I'm one of the sort of, uh, I'm one of the, not, not victims, but I had the AstraZeneca jab uh a week ago last Sunday, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. So I've uh, I felt crap all week, massive indigestion, acid acid reflux, just horrible. I was getting into this little swing of, um, of drinking about three or four liters of water a day. Couldn't couldn't touch water. It was just it was just horrendous. But I'm coming out of it now, feeling a lot better. Sounds yes. a bit sounds a bit wimpy, but I'm uh, I'm getting over. Not it. not at all. Look, first and foremost, we have to look after ourselves. Yeah. We need to be gentle on ourselves. And, uh, you know, there are times when we need to just take it easy, recharge the batteries, because actually, if you run them down, you know, it takes a long time to recharge. So it's better to not get in that place in the first place. I think managing our health is really, really important. Second to none. Yeah, un un yeah undoubtedly, undoubtedly. So, um, so yeah, um, so we've got a common friend, Alan Dowie, to thank for this little uh, this little meeting and this little engagement, which has been lovely so far. So thank you to Alan for setting it up. Uh, we'll mention him in dispatches. Um, so many people will know you um, with your you, you know very well connected chap, very well networked chap. People might know you for your keynote addresses, for your after dinner work. People might know you from your book. People might know you from your numerous TV and internet interview experiences and all of that. Or people might just know you as Chris <laughs> or that, that bloke that's always out running and looking at flowers and doing all that nice stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess just for people who, who don't know you as one of those things or something else, um, do you want to just, and this, this might be a good thing to do because it might actually, it might actually set the scene for all those sliding doors in your life that led you to this point that you're at today. So for work, and we were just having a, having a bit of a chat about some of the things that you're doing for work. What is it you do these days for, uh, for work? I am a keynote speaker and I run workshops and programs to improve individual and team. And there are three aspects to what I do. I've got lots of experience on the balance of life and death and on the limited human endurance. I'm genuinely one of the luckiest people alive you like me. And I walk the talk when it comes to the concept of limitation. I became the world's first amputee ultra distance runner. So I've got lots of experiences I can use to illustrate principles uh, and truths that will help people do what they do better. The angle is I did my master's in human behavior. I work a lot with scientists and business school. Rigor to the I share, but I just give um, illustrations of real experience. So people can get the emotional context I've had the good fortune to be a speaker uh, in the last year online, um, uh, a few face-to-faces actually, uh, socially distanced for essential training around um, uh, well-being, mental health, and uh, health and safety. So um, I've had the good fortune to work with many, many organisations and different groups of people, and uh, it's all about them. They are the stars of my show. It's about helping them improve their individual team performance. Wow! In a nutshell, that's the the, the elevator speech right there. Um, yes, but that... we couldn't we couldn't be in an elevator right now because it's one <laughs> a time in an elevator, mate. 
exactly, exactly. Um, silly, maybe a silly question. You've been doing this for so long and worked with such amazing companies and groups of people. Um, that individual and team performance thing, is it all nuanced and specific or are there any common themes that you've seen over the years that you've been doing this? There are common themes. Firstly, Eric, there's no such thing as a bad question, uh, merely a bad answer. This is a good question. And yes, there are common themes. I think what I've noticed is that organisations that have trust uh, are by far and away the most successful and the most receptive performance improvement, even though they will be performing really well. Right. Uh, where we don't have trust, where people are uncertain, where there are dark emotional clouds hanging, where there's uh, concern and fear, then, yeah, they're, they're tough places. And uh, so, yes, that, that's probably the most obvious and simple answer. Well, right. Let's uh, let's get in the old H.G. Wells time machine and go a bit back in time. So um, growing up, um, I guess you went to school. Was it Salisbury you went to school? Yeah. Yeah. I grew so up in... was, that, was, that where you, was that where you grew up? Yeah, I was born in a little village in a, in a farmhouse, um, born at home and uh, lovely place. And uh, I grew up there, uh, South England in Wiltshire. It was like living 40 years behind the times in the village where I grew up. <laughs> um, my family originally from Scotland, so right. I guess I, I moved here many, many years later and it felt like coming home as well. Right. Uh, nice, nice part of the world good people, but I guess if you look for good people, you'll always find them. Oh, totally, totally, absolutely. What a beautiful thing to say. Um, uh, so from school time, uh, you went on to do some work in uh, at, at uh, college, now Plymouth Facility of Agriculture and Environment, the HND in agriculture. What was the, was that just from the environment? Was that? Yeah, um, yeah, my family were farmers or soldiers, farmers or fighters. And so I grew up on, on a farm and, and it is in the blood. You know, right. random fact here, Eric, uh, the only social group that intermarries in the United Kingdom is farming. You know, because it is an unusual and massive commitment. It is a way of life. And, you know, if you think about it, I was milking cows seven days a week. You have to be there um, twice a day to milk cows. And it, it is very unusual compared to most modern occupations. But I love farming. I love, I have a very um, close connection with the land and with nature. Uh, and I grew up with that. And I feel very privileged to have had that um, upbringing. And of course, I ended up wanting to be back with trees and, and in the countryside because that's what I grew up with. But there was no land or money in my bit of the family. So I had to work hard. So from the age of 15, I used to work before I went to school in the morning. I worked every weekend, every holiday. By the time I was 21, I'd achieved my life's ambition. I was in a, a farming partnership. Um, and um, the guy that I worked with, he had the most amazing attitude to work. He said, look, you know, we're here seven days a week. We work incredibly hard compared to most people. In the summer, we get up at four o'clock in the morning. We'd finish at 11 at night when we were silaging. You'd think nothing of it. Uh, you'd just get five hours sleep uh, and you'd wake up five hours later. You'd only been asleep for about minutes. And then you get up and you, you do it again. But um, so, yes, it is a lovely way of life. But economically, uh, you know, farming is becoming tougher and tougher. Yeah. And, of course, many, many of the family farms have gone. We're losing, I think, one a week at the moment. 
and uh, yes, economically farming is tough. And uh, of course, the return on capital if you buy your land, it, I think it's about less than one percent. So, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily stand up as a business proposition. But I, it was my life, my family. I'd spent a lot of time with my cousins and my uncle when I was a child growing up on their farm as well. So um, I kind of knew nothing else. And I loved it. And, and, you know, my business partner was an amazing guy. He'd started in the 1930s. He left school at 15, then got a small uh, tenancy. He milked cows. He worked incredibly hard. You know, I've never seen anybody work like him physically. And I got involved in, in the mid-1980s. And this was the sort of last area of, of really kind of muscle power. Yeah. That, you know, you had to be able to work hard to leap on and off the tractors to um, stack bales to milk the cows. And, and of course, now um, farm work is much more automated. Yeah. And the machines are much, much bigger. But it, it was a, a lovely period of life. And unfortunately, there was just one bit of um, the philosophy to work that my business partner missed, and that was looking after his long term health. He had worked so hard. Uh, that he'd worn out his joints by the time he was in his mid-50s. He, he had the heart of a lion. He was not for quitting. No. Uh, and I worried about this for months and months. And then one day I just realised, uh, I said to him, look, I, I should go and do something else. It's also, I had a college, I understood, um, I understood agriculture. So I guess education was a good thing for me. Yeah. And there's something called the treadmill theory. Uh, and it, it explains the challenge that farmers face. And it's very simple. Every scientific advance in agriculture, whether it's animal husbandry, whether it's protection with chemicals, whether it's improved nutrition, all of that means that more product is... All the time, agriculture is becoming more and more efficient. And then if we apply the rule of supply and demand, what that means is there's more and more product out there. Therefore, in real terms, the price is going to drop. There's so much of it. But at the same time, the only way the poor old farmers can increase their income is by producing more. And so therefore, they're on a treadmill. The faster they run, the faster they have to run. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. And it's, it's desperate. You can, you can, you can feel the, the tension involved in that and the ever-decreasing circles. Yeah, yeah, awful, awful. yeah, and of course the 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 sweet spots are say specialist organic growers who are selling to a rich market, mm. but the reality is most people in the United Kingdom need cheap food. You know, there are sadly many many people in our society struggling to pay the bills, and what they need is good cheap food. So you know, modern agriculture definitely has its place. And if people have the wealth and the preference to go for the high-end niche stuff, and if farmers are retailing their own stuff, then good for them. But that, that's the reality. And, uh, and so I said to my business partner, look, you know, I should do something else. You should sell up and enjoy your money. Story with a really happy ending. He lived until he was 92. He had a great life. He was happy. And, uh, yeah, great. I'm, I feel very privileged to have had such a great friend. Second brother, really. And, yeah. uh, but of course, out of every disadvantage we experienced, we found out of every disappointment, out of every letdown, 
out of every failure, there has always been greater opportunity. A greater opportunity, of course. So out of every disappointment I've experienced, out of every failure, out of every disappointment, you know what? There's always been a greater good. There's yeah. been a bigger opportunity. So, you know, when we're kids, I don't know if you can remember this, you know, being a guy who's six foot six and a rugby player, you must have had growing pain. Oh, yeah. Your legs will have done a lot of growing. Yeah. And I think that that's something we need to recognise in our adult lives, that, you know, there will be an element of pain maybe when we grow. Yeah. And, and but I guess the difference between optimists and pessimists is that an optimist will focus on the opportunities in a time of just focus on on the difficulties. Yeah. So I, I'm a realistic optimist, absolutely. And so I wanted to do something humanitarian. And my my father fought in the Second World War, my grandfather in the First World War. So I was very aware of the military, and it was very much, I guess, part of my upbringing and my identity. So I, I went to Sandhurst and became an army officer, just like that. Well, obviously, I had, I had to, I had to apply. Um, it was very different to farming, and it required me to think differently. Uh, very, very funny, because um, I'm still in touch with my friends. And uh, it was a great experience. You know, you made friends for life. But also, you know, I went there. I'd had no military experience at all. I'd done a herd manager's job before I went there. So I was, I was going to San Jose taking a, um, um, a two-thirds pay cut. I was earning three times more out of the army yeah. what I earned when I joined. I definitely didn't join for the money. Yeah. Uh, but I had no military experience. So my learning curve at San Jose was very, very steep. My color sergeant, who I later I have become really good friends with the guy that trained me the color sergeant. Firstly, colored sergeants at Sandhurst have a remarkable ability to make the word sir. I don't know how they do that. There must be some sort of training. <laughs> they were, it was just a really great time. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot. I met some great people. And uh, it was an experience that a lot. Most important thing I learned from Sandhurst, don't take yourselves don't be the centre of your own universe. We've all got to be able to laugh at ourselves because at the end of the day, we're all a bit ridiculous. We are. We are a bit ridiculous. Um, now, uh, you finished off at Sandhurst and then you're... I, 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 I'm fascinated by military. I'm fascinated by, you know, anything that's, that's, that's related to the military. It's just, But I know nothing about the technicalities of it. So... You did your time at Santos, and I guess then you're out in sort of operations and doing things. Mm. And there's a, I guess there's a moment during this, uh, during this time that's that's there's a, a series of things that for people who know you and have read the books and seen the interviews, there is a series of things that happened in your life that that are kind of like the known bits about Chris. The sort of, you know, oh yes, that's that's the chap that X, Y, and Z. Um, so was the operational aspects of being out in the field and, and being an officer walk in the park? Uh, I, I was much better suited to operations, I think, of doing things for real. Right. Because uh, that's my kind of background growing up farming. It's about doing stuff. So that, that really suited me. And I volunteered to go to Northern Ireland. So I did three years on counter-terrorist operations. Crikey. 
and um, I I enjoyed it. Um, I met some really good people. I think it's also important to understand that those conditions are stressful and, and yeah. you know, we like to think we control things all the time, but we don't. The reality is some of the times you, you are dealing with situations that haven't been dealt with before and you just got to do the best you can. Crikey, just incredible. Um, so there's there's you know for anyone who researches you on the internet they'll find they'll find the the the, the famous um Khmer Rouge kind of stuff when did that all how did that all come about when, when was that was that during your time as an officer no i left the british army uh, right. i had a wonderful time in the army but at that point the army was contracting so it didn't look like there were any conflicts coming up i'd done 3 years in operations i wanted to do something for real and uh, I so three, three years. So all your 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 three years uh, in operations was in Northern Ireland. Yes. Right. Got you. Okay. Makes sense. And then I came out of the army. I was on the reserve. Had a great time in in, in on the reserve in the territorial army. But um, I wanted to do something that used both my agricultural background, engineering, and and I did my development at. College. So I wanted to combine that and do something really useful. And uh, so I decided to go and work for a charity clearing landmines in Asia and Africa. Fabulous charity called the Halo Trust. Now the biggest landmine clearance charity in the world, a fabulous organisation. And I joined in the very early days. Uh, I was very good at mine clearance, Eric. I found a very thing we were looking for. Yes, you did. You found, you found, you're brilliant at finding uh, them. over here! <laughs> Found one. <laughs> yeah, Chris, the very thing we're looking for. The very thing we're looking for. Good job, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yes, you go and you're doing that. Um, and I'm trying to put this in order. Khmer Rouge, okay, landmine, so landmine. 1993, I was in Cambodia, right. and the United Nations were there. Um, when you go to Phnom Penh now, the capital city of Cambodia, it's hard to think it was just only 20 years ago. It hadn't changed for 30 years. And, uh, you know, uh, the Khmer Rouge took power in 1973. They, uh, 1975, sorry, they, they ruled Cambodia until 1979 when they were pushed out by a Vietnamese invasion. And then there was a civil war that went on for almost five years. Uh, in 1993, after the Paris Peter Accord, the United Nations had a massive mission uh, to bring peace to Cambodia. And it is still one of the most successful UN peacekeeping operations. They held elections. Uh, there was a government. Um, they, they had a transitional authority. During that period, the Khmer Rouge didn't take part in the elections. They had been pushed back into jungle strongholds. And we were asked by the United Nations to clear landmines in a remote border village, uh, which we did. They said there was no way the Khmer Rouge could get near us, but unfortunately it happened. No one could predict the Khmer Rouge sent to the jungle and I was kidnapped or abducted or, a, and I'm not quite sure what the word is. Uh, taken prisoner is, is the most accurate because that's what it was. Right. Uh, I was taken prisoner, but bear in mind the Khmer Rouge had little or no interaction with them. Right. And I was taken prisoner with two Cambodian colleagues who we were held for three days. There were seven times executing us. Fortunately, I persuaded the Khmer Rouge commander 
not to execute us and release us and not to put us in prison. And he knew that once he put us in prison, he would be dead. So that, that for him was a big deal. Many years later, I went back and I became friends with him. I saw he wasn't being indicted by Ridge Waterfront anymore. And, uh, do you know, uh, as a result of making the decision not to he was seen as ideologically impure. So that meant the Khmer Rouge sent to kill him. Heard about this, and so he defected. And it was one of the biggest actions putting an end to the fight. But, um, yeah. So many, many years later, I went back and became friends with the Khmer Rouge commander who made the decision not to execute us. And uh, what he said completely astonished me. He said that more people had been brought in front of him than he could remember. And uh, he knew that I was a good person because I wasn't afraid of him, but I was the only person that wasn't afraid of him. Uh, and that influenced him and it, it, it made the difference between him releasing us or not. So that was enough just to make him think just slightly differently. And that, that thinking yeah. time was enough to make him form a conclusion that maybe you were, maybe you were an interesting person that was worth a bit more. Well, I think I, I also had a very clear strategy in how I was communicating with them, right. that I wanted to identify with them and get them to identify in me. And of course, the Khmer Rouge had a philosophy of um, peasant farming. They were going to create a rice growing dynasty, which, of course, economically in the 1970s was completely impossible to create your wealth through agriculture alone. But that's the way they saw it. And they were going to create this um, agricultural society that was going to be a major regional power. And all of the people were turned back to the year zero and made to work on the land. Um, most of the Khmer Rouge were peasants. Right. So it was, um, it was a communist uprising. It was um, started by Pol Pot, who was their leader. And it took ooh, more than 15 years to come to fruition. But when it did, of course, they, most of their, most of their, ranking officers were peasants and they'd had little education they were farmers they were peasant farmers and they hated the decadence of the west and the uh, wastefulness if you're a peasant farmer struggling to feed yourself of course you know the much of the urban dwelling wealth will appear obscene and, and unnecessary yeah. and and so uh, the fact that I'd come from a farming background and I could work incredibly hard physically definitely helped me. My goodness me, my goodness. Um, how, how did, uh, how were you, were you just released? Were you busted out? Well, how did it work? Um, after nearly three days, he decided he would release us and we were sent back through the jungle. I was driving my Land Rover and the Land Rover got stuck they made bridges by putting big logs under the water right. and digging them into the banks. So you drove across the logs. So uh, this was an easy way to make a bridge for them, but also it couldn't be seen from the air and the water flowed underneath the logs. So you couldn't actually see the bridge. Um, 
and it required a bit of careful driving. And as I was coming across one of those, my Land Rover got stuck, it came off the log, and I managed to somehow winch it out. By the grace of God, I managed to winch my Land Rover out. And of course, again, my farming background and being able to be practical and, and do that really, really helped because they wanted the vehicle. And in the end, we were then, after we'd been released, we were attacked by another group of Khmer Rouge in a, di a different faction. They were a highly factional organization. Right. So we were released from one area. And then as we were traveling back, we were attacked and taken prisoner by uh, another faction. And then the whole process began again. And that was when it was so important not to give up hope. You know, it would be so easy to give up. But then I negotiated with the senior Khmer Rouge commander there who released us. My goodness me. Um, so then uh, I guess you get out of there um, which you, you, you go into much more detail in your book. Uh, so it's worth uh, definitely picking up on that uh, one step beyond, right? Um, when did you get to Mozambique? I went to Mozambique end of 1994, almost two years after I'd been kidnapped or taken prisoner by the Khmer Rouge. So I stayed on in Cambodia, carried on working and running my clearance teams. And in Mozambique, um, massive country, I was running an a large operation in the north of the country, clearing landmines. And uh, after I'd been there about nearly five months, I was walking up a safe lane where all the landmines had been removed. But unfortunately, it wasn't possible for complex technical and behavioral reasons for the D-miners to locate one landmine. There was just one they couldn't find. So although I was in the safe area, there was one they couldn't locate. And I stepped on it. And uh, I still remember it all in the present tense because it was so extreme. But looking on the bright side, I always said that if my blokes missed a landmine, I always wanted to be the first to know about it. So yeah. on that basis, I have never complained. Never complained. Never complained at all. No, not at all. My goodness. Um, there's a statement you make in your, uh, in your um, you've got a little goals um, section in your about section on your, on your LinkedIn profile. And it's got some lovely stuff in there. I'll ask people to go and have a look at it. Go on to Chris, Chris Moon, MBE's um, LinkedIn page and go down to the goals. But there's one right in the middle that says, show why, no matter how bad it gets, we should never assume the role of victim. Yeah. That's very, that's very powerful. Because although it might seem that there is no hope, what happens is when the going gets tough, we slip into the role of victim without even realising it. Yeah. That's the natural default setting. We slip into it. We give up. We become compliant. We see no hope. We learn to be helpless if we don't think we can do anything about it. And so I survived as a prisoner of the Khmer Rouge. And after me, 12 people were taken. Sadly, all of them were executed. Um, you know, what I learned is I survived because I made that decision early on to say, I will never assume the role of victim. Don't be a victim. Look. Most of us have so much we take for granted. And whilst it may seem hopeless and pointless, life is truly a gift that we have, that we take for granted. And we should, yeah. we should just get out there, take pleasure in simple things. And whilst it may seem sometimes our lives are, are painful, uh, difficult, unfair, and of course, life can be difficult and unfair and when those things happen to us that we don't think we deserve and there is no hope, well, 
that's no reason to give up. The great thing is to keep on keeping on and to recognize actually, maybe it's not what happens to us that's important. It is how we choose to deal with it. An attitude, no matter what happens, is our choice. So um, all that said, and as powerful as that is, you're lying in a bed at some point, you've realized what's happened to your body. Um, you must have given yourself five minutes of feeling like a victim. Uh, you must have. No, no. Not at all, not even a second. No, because look, reasons are psychological rocket fuel. I accept, look, we gotta take responsibility for ourselves. We might end up in an unfortunate and unhappy situation, but actually no one can deal with that for us. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. So yeah, I didn't expect that to happen to me. Right. I, don't, I don't think, well, I know I didn't screw up. There will always be people who say you did, but I didn't. You know, there's nothing I could do differently if I was to go down that safety lane again today. Without the benefit of hindsight, there's nothing I can do. So let's be honest about this, Eric. Shit happens to all of us. But the important thing is to recognize that and wipe it off before it sticks. Because nobody wants to be next to somebody with that stuff stuck to them. So oh, we all need to develop our wiping off mechanisms. And, and that's what it is. And for me, yeah, sure. My family, my friends said Chris Moon's life is over. You know, his hobbies, running, gardening, motorcycling. But most importantly, he lives for his work clearing landmines. And he can't do that anymore. Uh, so he can't be him. So his life's over. Uh, nothing could be further than the truth. And I didn't see it that way because you've got to accept it. It is what it is. I recognised I had to say, well, yeah, it happened. I need to wipe it off. I need to move past this. I am just grateful for my eyes. I'm thankful that I have my left arm, my left leg. And I've got to think differently. I have to think in a different way. And I have to work harder. But life is truly a gift we take for granted. And it is how we interpret the unfortunate and negative events in life that we sometimes experience that makes a difference. It's how we process it and say, right, how will I make the best of this? And I will have to take the pain. I, I've, I was told I wouldn't run again by some people. Yeah. And genuinely, some people told me, you know, you're just going to have to be thankful for what you can get. You might get a job, but at least you're alive. Well, no, I'm going to thrive. It is what it is. How do we make the best of it? Crikey, crikey. And I guess, I guess part of that mindset for people who've read your book, for people who've read what's available on the internet, um, yes, we can see the words that they gave you a sort of prognosis of recovery. And I don't know if you just decided this, but you smashed all the times that they said, you know, we reckon it's going to be X. And you said, nah, yeah. it's going to be quicker than that. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because I worked with those most wonderful nurses and doctors and healthcare professionals and I listened and I learned and I had a sense of humor. I think that's really important, not being the center of your own universe. Focus on the positive outcomes of your treatment. I was just so grateful to those amazing people for helping me to heal and who treated me. You know, I have just much love and respect for nurses and doctors because, you know, um, they're people as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think it was focusing on the positive outcomes and having an element of ownership. 
taking ownership for everything. If we say, look, I'm going to take responsibility for us, for this, and, and everything that affects me in life, then that puts me in the driving seat. Yeah. Big time. Big time. So, uh, yeah, there are many people that would, or some people in the world that have gone through things close to what you've gone through or, or, or the situation that you found yourself in and uh, and thought and may have said, right, okay, I'm going to go on with some aspects of my life. Um, but you decided that you were going to just, you know, I'm a runner. I said, why can't I run anymore? Yeah. Um, so you, you, you uh, was, it, was it a year after? Yeah, it was less than a year after leaving hospital that I did my first London Marathon. And uh, I was told that someone like me couldn't do that then. Yeah, you can't. Uh, yeah, and and uh, you should leave it four years, and and uh, and I realised that actually, with the best will in the world, uh, for very good reasons, some people were imposing limitations, uh, and and from good motives to look after you, make sure you didn't hurt yourself. But actually, the biggest limits in life are not out here. Yeah, the biggest limits are what goes on in here. It's what goes on inside our heads that limits us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, back then, artificial legs, 1996, were nothing like as good as they are now. But I am pleased and proud to say I got around the London Marathon and I had reasons much more important than me to do it. Yeah. And uh, I thought I was doing really well until I got to the 11 mile point when I was passed by the fattest man in the world dressed as a chicken. <laughs> At which point I realised, don't be the centre of your own universe. You yeah. know, there's a whole load of people out there. We've got to be able to laugh at ourselves. Big time, big time, big time. Um, uh, th there's an, another statement uh, which I resonate with because I'm not quite sure if you were first first amputee or and first Brit to do the Martin de Sable. Uh, well, I was told that I was the first amputee. Uh, quite a few British people have done it, but um, right. I was told that I, I was the first amputee to complete it in 1996. Double, double amputee because I had my hand off, so that counts as double apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it was a challenge. Um, and I had to go in realistically saying, well, if I don't finish it this time, then what I'll do is I will learn how to do it next time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was tough and uh, it used every ounce of effort that I had. But I'm pleased to say uh, I got a an artificial leg that I could do quite a lot of high activity stuff on. So I'm pleased to say I managed to finish it and uh, raised money for the British Red Cross who did a fantastic job. And together we raised about, I think, well over 120,000 for artificial limbs in Asia. So it was a good, good, good first ultra. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a sentence or a phrase that's used in your, there's a, a lovely, well, it's not a lovely video, it's a horrendous video to watch, actually, which is a reconstruction on your website. Um, and there's a phrase that rung true with me because I'm fascinated by this gap that I call it, this gap. Um, your, the phrase that's used, and I, I guess it's your words, what happens, in fact, it is your words, it's on the piece of camera that you're doing. What happens most of the time is that we stop here at this point in which it's uncomfortable, where it all hurts a bit too much. But the reality is we have the capacity to go beyond that, that point if we believe that we can. Now that that stopped me in my tracks because I've been, I, I too, um, we are Marathon de Sable brothers. Um, uh, I failed in 2013 very painfully and then went back in 2015 with the learning that you'd said you would do, but you managed to do it all in one go. So I, I had to I had to fail to learn to go back to achieve. Um, 
But that that gap, and I realized then at this point in my life, and I am no specialist in this, I'm not a, a, an accomplished runner. I've done a lot of events, but I'm not an accomplished athlete or sports person. I just have my own views on this, none of which are, are backed up by any science. Um, but that point by which your brain is saying, we need to stop, you need to stop. We're going to put chemicals out into your muscles to make you exhausted. We're going to make you want to sit down. We're going to make you want to get into a place with a cup of tea and biscuits and with either heat or air conditioning. Um, we need to stop this because we're going to die. And if you actually just turn that voice off, how much more you have left in the tank. I'm fascinated by that gap. Fascinated yeah, by that. I, I think that that gap is, is there, definitely. And that is where mind control comes in. One of the things that's interesting these days is that that gap, when you have run out of everything, now there is a danger that people can get, um, you know, high caffeine, um, some steroid sort of sports drinks, and that makes them go beyond the point at which their bodies would cut out. Yeah. So I think these days that I, I have obviously never taken anything like that, but I am aware I've heard stories of people who have, who sadly have gone too far and really seriously hurt themselves or in some cases died. So I think I would flag up an element of danger in trying to bridge that gap chemically. Just wow. stay mm -hmm. hydrated. This mm -hmm. is on, on real serious endurance stuff. Yeah. Um, particularly perhaps some of the stuff that the military does on, on selection courses, things like that. Don't go the chemical route because there is a danger there. But just stay hydrated the mind space is the area that is mine it is how we control our minds to go one step beyond the point at which we feel we can go no further and we do that through finding our reasons we do that through discipline we do that through breaking it down into manageable steps is exactly the same principle as eating an elephant how do you eat an elephant one forkful at a time chunk it don't look at this massive scary big thing that you've got to do break it down into manageable steps and chunk it um this isn't about me it's about you but just a quick one on that when i failed at the marathon de sable in 2013 i went there to get a medal when i went back in 2015 i went section by section by section by section by section and i had a strategy and a plan and the plan was to deliver checkpoint to checkpoint with a plan in Absolutely. my mind yeah. and as you say bite-sized chunks bite-sized yeah. I had a little rhythm you know I changed my socks and dried my feet and tended to my feet at every checkpoint I didn't do that in 2013 I just clattered on yeah I'll be fine, yeah, abs I'll be fine. absolutely absolutely Eric and of course the thing I would say is in 2013 you didn't fail you learned how to do it you didn't fail you just learned how to do it next time We've got a lousy attitude towards failure in this country. You yeah, just of course. Can't do it. Uh, by the way, uh, allow me to ask you a question. Man with a hairstyle like you, what are you doing with a comb? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, okay, caught. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of my one of my other guests on this sorry, show. <laughs> doesn't really compute with me. I didn't mean to be rude, but I couldn't help. I had to ask. How very dare you, Chris? How very dare you? I, I it's it's my parting for my parting. <laughs> I tell you what it is. You know those little um, you know those little 
Japanese um, Zen sandboxes that people have on their desks. So I sit like this and I and I comb my beard. You could you could get a job as the evil mastermind in a James Bond film, sitting there. So, Mister Bond. Yes. <laughs> combing your beard <laughs> i don't I, think I it's, suspect- it's not intimidating in any way though i don't think it's going to freak no it isn't out. It, but it, it, it catches the eye and <laughs> i'm sure it's also very very good for getting bits of boiled egg out your beard very good very good yeah tikka masala sauce up here yeah the whole lot the whole lot very good now you've completely thrown me now i have no idea where we were <laughs> uh, we were talking about challenging the concept of limitation so that that one step beyond is a beautiful um segue into um with all the experience that you've had, at what point did you find it fitting to, and what was the catalyst for the book? Um, uh, People, everyone said, you should write this. You should write down your experiences. So I did, that's it. And um, yeah, it it was a great thing to do. It's nice to have recorded it and uh, nice that my kids would be able to read it in later life. I'm very privileged to have had the experiences that I've had. And I realize that now because look, you know, we were the last era before SatNav. We were the last few years before satellite technology came online and there were mobile phones everywhere, but we were in the middle of nowhere with no communications except a UHF radio. And if your Land Rover broke down and you didn't fix it, you had no transport. So you had to work with people. Um, So yes, it was a remarkable experience. the Halo Trust continues to do good work all around the world, clearing landmines, keeping people safe, and uh, will be doing so for many years to come. But on a much bigger scale now, you know, on 10 times the scale of the operation that I was running in, in say, Mozambique and Cambodia. And the good news is Mozambique is now clear of landmines. Brilliant. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so the, 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 the ultra thing, now you're not a very accomplished ultra and respected ultra marathon runner right um again i I, I hate asking this question but just for for people who are interested how many ultra events have you do you even count do you even count i have lost count hundreds probably 100 i don't know lots crikey tell Uh, tell me this only because when i I first met you the other day i thought i've I've seen chris before did you did you ever do the mourn way ultra in ireland no, I haven't done that. Definitely I've been at like the Mourns when I was in, in Ireland. I used to regularly go and run there and hill walk. But yeah, I haven't a fabulous place, fabulous place. Yeah, uh, but now, of course, it's really interesting how this has changed in 20 years because there are so many more ultra events than there used to be. It used to be thought that it was only a handful, handful of people can do it. But now we know that if you train, anybody can do it. So <laughs> yeah. you, could do, you, know, you could do an ultra every day now in the UK, probably, yeah. when things open up again. Again, horrible question to ask someone who's done so many. Which one, if if at all, which one do you think back to and thought that that was that was a cracker, that was that was a um, beauty? Okay, so Badwater in Devon, hottest place on earth, hundred and thirty-five miles in the hottest place on earth, has to be completed in under forty-eight hours. That is challenging. Yeah, uh, just because the heat, it just you start to cook. That's what it feels like. And you do it with your support crew. Um, there, there are two races in the UK that for me are phenomenal. One of which is the West Highland Way race, 95 miles 
got to complete it in under 35 hours. I've done that twice. I've there's a couple of times when I didn't do that. One was because it had been very dry that year and all the paths were like concrete. And I had literally my artificial leg fell apart. Oi, okay. And I put my spare on and then that fell apart. I literally broke two carbon fiber legs doing it. Uh, and of course I, I was testing legs then, but so they then re arranged the design and the way they were working to make them stronger. So that didn't happen again. So I guess you could say that in, in terms of testing, that was a success. Yeah. Um, the other race that is extraordinary is the 117 mile Devon coast to coast. So you start on the South coast of Devon, you go over Dartmoor and Exmoor, you finish in Lynmouth and that is 117 miles in under 40 hours. That's a tough gig. I'm just writing some of these down because some of my friends, I'm going to make sure that some of my friends watch this that are right into this kind of, they may, maybe know about them already, but that's just, uh, that's just fabulous. But you, um, you've been quoted as, uh, as saying that you don't intend anytime soon to give up this ultra malarkey. Not at all. Um, <laughs> quite often the biggest limits in life are imposed by our thinking. And uh, I want to run ultra distance in my seventies and eighties if I can. So I hope to run, keep running for the next 30 years until I can't run anymore. And, uh, you know, in the short term, you might not do a few races or you'll come back off your times. But I don't want to run faster than anybody else. I just want to run faster than myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, a great... Um, I do wear a... I, I, I don't do any, any significant distance, but I do wear a, a smartwatch, but it's just for my own, for myself. You know, don't really, don't really mind if I'm beating anyone or beating any segments or, or setting any records. I never will anyway. Um, so with what you're doing on resilience and uh, well-being and, and performance and all of that, with everything that, um, that either businesses or individuals, teams or individuals have been through this year, it's been a horrible old time for everyone. Um, what would your advice be to people who are feeling a little bit downtrodden, not so sure about the future, worried about this, that, and the next thing? Um, just, a, just a couple of things to just that people could maybe grab onto, a couple of sticks for people to grab onto. Firstly, most of us have had a tough time. The first thing to realise is, look, getting through this is enough. Take the pressure off. Don't feel you have to do all these things, this, that, and the other. Getting through this is enough and take the pressure off. Do what you can to take the pressure off. Next, realize that actually, yeah, it's okay not to be okay, but here is where my philosophy is different because it is not okay to not do something about it. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to feel okay. Sure, we all have those feelings. Negative emotions are like weeds. They're always gonna germinate. Weed seeds will always germinate in any bit of ground that is dug we're always gonna get them. So it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, sure, but it's not okay to not do something about it. Ask for help, yep. do things that will make you feel better. Be disciplined, go for a walk, um, do things that will give you some have-tos. Uh, you know, you, we need to find our own reasons for getting up in the morning. Uh, don't just sit there, get out and, and get some exercise. If you're able to run, run. You'll, you'll be fine walking if you're not a runner or do some sort of exercise, do something that gets you moving. Make the effort not to be isolated. Phone people, reach out to people, go for a walk. And when you go out, smile. 
It is so important to smile, Eric. Come on, give us your best smile. That was it. That was it. It was back. It's behind this. Come on, come on. Give us your best smile. Eric, it is so important to smile, but not in a creepy way. I only have creepy smile. I only have creepy smile. Seriously, you have a lovely smile. Thank you. make, Make the effort to smile. Make the effort to find things that make you laugh um, and ask for help if you need it. Yeah. And uh, keep on keeping on. Don't give up. Recognize this is tough for everyone. And sometimes the people, you know, I think early on in lockdown, I was listening to a few radio presenters and I did feel that they weren't being entirely honest about the way they felt. I suspected that many of them went home and got a large glass of gin and cried in the corner. But the reality is each of us must find our own way to recharge our psychological batteries. And that's what I would say. Phone a friend, stroke the cat, go for a walk with a dog, take pleasure in simple things. The joy of seeing spring flowers emerge. It costs us nothing. Take pleasure in simple things. One of the things I've been really chuffed to see because Sarah and I did this uh, a few years ago was um, offload crap. Offload crap. We got onto a bit of a hamster wheel of, you know, it's all about things and stuff. Um, we got rid of all the stuff, got rid of it all and just went back to a, a simple lifestyle that was far more healthy um, off the sort of rat, the rat race of trying to keep up with the Joneses and all of that, which is very <clears> easy to slip into. Yep. Um, and just got back to a, a, a simple, meaningful life with uh, a few nice things. It doesn't have to be a lot of nice things. A few, a few things that mean things to us, that, but not just the endless pursuit of stuff. No. And, yeah. and of course, it's really important to realise it is not having things that makes us happy. That's only very short-lived. It is doing things that makes us happy. Totally. Totally. I think that's probably a fitting point uh, to draw this to a close. What's what's next for you? What's uh, as we're coming out of lockdown, as we're clearing our heads a little bit, as we're coming out like little newborn voles out of the darkness. Um, what's next? What do you see happening in 21? Any thoughts for yourself or anything that yeah. you've got? Well, as we're coming out of the darkness, for me, it's important to make 2021 about stepping into the light. Yep. I've, I've booked into the first ultra that was cancelled last year. So I'm really hoping that, and it looks like the restrictions have been lifted. So I can travel to do the coast to coast. So that's a really big one for me. So that's Devon? Yeah, I got loads of people that I'm connecting with work-wise and helping uh, them to improve their individual and team performance. That I find mega exciting. I love working with people. And I'm hoping that um, towards the end of the year, live events will come back and we can be together again. Outstanding. So we'll put all the uh, the contacts for you on this. And if anybody, I guess you're not adverse to a call. You were very amenable to this one, yeah. which is lovely. If anyone wants to get in touch with you. Yeah, just, you put them, just put them in touch. Eric. I'd love to put chat them. to anyone. It's really great. And and you are such a wonderful person. It is not true what Alan Darry says about you. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I say the same about him. So it all balances out. It's all about balance, isn't it? Yeah, difference is you're right, obviously. <laughs> Fantastic. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to right, talk keep to in you. touch, Eric, and let me know what you do business wise. If there's any introductions, we'll, we'll have a chat every few weeks now. It'd be lovely to see what you're doing. And Likewise. Touch, buddy. Thank you so much. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.